Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. For tuning into this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Ed Watts. He's a professor of history at the University of California, San Diego. He's the author and editor of several prize-winning books, including The Final Pagan Generation and Mortal Republic. He's working on a new book about rise and decline narratives in ancient Rome, which deals extensively with pandemics and how they shape the Roman consciousness of rise and decline of society. We had a great time talking about ancient Rome and the lessons we can learn about how it dealt with pandemics and what might be instructive for our collective response to society. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I give you Ed Watts. Ed, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be back. Yeah, well, you're a you're a favorite guest of a lot of our listeners, and I reached out to you. This is so funny because I reached out to you the other yesterday and was saying, "Hey, you want to come on and talk about you know pandemics and the ancient Roman Empire? We can learn from about the Fragility Republics." And you were like, "I'm working on a book on the topic." <laughs> and I was like, "What are the odds?" But it's interesting. You sent me a, a part of the book you're working on, and you you talk about this in the beginning. You talk about Trump's uh, American carnage uh, inauguration speech what I, what I hear was better in the original german or maybe the original town <laughs> it's actually something mussolini would have delivered but it's interesting you you talk about how that this whole you call it this decline and renewal narrative that hey we're in decline we need to renew. but you say you know it's interesting this is not a partisan thing when you look at barack obama's uh uh, inaugural. There's this language of, you know, our time of standing pad, of protecting our interests and putting off unpleasant decisions. That time is surely past. Starting today, we must pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, and begin again the work of remaking America. So it's interesting you kind of point out that although that this is, uh, you know, this sort of make America great again thing, it seems like the ultimate sort of decline and renewal narrative, that it, it's a bipartisan tendency, a nonpartisan tendency. And, and then you talk about how this kind of decline and renewal narrative uh, w- was really prevalent in ancient Rome, the ancient Roman Republic, and, and, and not in a, I mean, it seems like your take is that it wasn't the healthiest thing in the world for the Roman Republic, because it winds up making demons and picking winners and losers. You kind of have to castigate some people to lift yourself up. Is that like a fair summary? Yeah, I think what what this rhetoric represents is a way to um, to highlight a particular problem and blame it on somebody else. And in a republic, this is a dynamic process where what you're basically doing is highlighting a problem and indicating that you have a solution, but the rhetoric allows you to do something that wouldn't otherwise be tolerable. And so you create a situation where you you are, in essence, building an emergency that requires some sort of really aggressive or otherwise unpalatable action. Uh, and then you justify it on the grounds that there's a, an existential threat that we have to address immediately. And these the consequences of this um, are things we must bear or the society won't be able to to stand up. Um, and what you see in the Roman Republic is this is done in a lot of cases by people like Cato the Elder or Tiberius Gracchus, where their political orientation, uh, it 
isn't specifically a reactionary position or a radical position. It's really just a position where you're creating a space for yourself to be a kind of savior figure. And so you get this on um, on the side of populists, you get this on the side of conservatives, but what you always have is people creating a tension between a dynamic reality and something that they claim they can bring back. Um, but what they're doing is creating a kind of savior narrative where they will be empowered to do something that otherwise wouldn't be tolerable. And so the rhetoric is something that in, in a republic uh, always indicates someone who's trying to do something radically different from what has happened before. And it's absolutely true. This is a rhetoric of the right, but it's also rhetoric of the left. Um, in a contemporary space, obviously Trump uses this rhetoric, but so do people on the left, um, people who talk about returning to the economic realities of the post-war generation. Um, and so this rhetoric is kind of equally powerful, but it's also equally disruptive. And there's something very fundamental about changing the conditions of society that this rhetoric kind of presupposes. Um, and the way it works generally is somebody is on the other side of it. You know, somebody is blamed for the problem. You say something interesting in this in, in this intro to the book. You you say that uh, descriptions of decline require very few supporting facts. They're emotional things driven by stories rather than data. M many of them require nothing more than a compelling storyteller. And you say in their world, rhetoric creates facts. Facts matter less than emotions. And the emotions they generate are indeed powerful. One can feel decline even when one cannot see it or document it. And one can also feel renewal even... If it is imaginary, I mean, I, I, I remember seeing this like cheesy poster in a, in a Hallmark store and it was like a unicorn and it was like, you know, something you'd put in like a, you know, I, I don't know, like a, a sentimental, like, you know, poster, but it, it, this unicorn said the, the wording of the poster was some things you have to believe to see. And this is kind of what you're saying, right? Like a lot of these renewal narratives, you just it, once you believe them, you can see it everywhere, right? The, the decline, you can see the decline, you can see the, 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 people that perpetrated it, whether or not they did. And so once you believe, you can see the whole thing, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, you can always find in, in the introduction, what I, what I sort of create or play with is this idea of a snapshot in a story, right? You, you have, if you have a snapshot, you can interpret this however you want, right? It's a still life. And the things that lead up to it and the things that follow out of it are things that you, in essence, have to kind of create. You don't create it out of nothing. But you create it out of your reading of the the things that you see depicted before you, and so if you have um, one of the examples that I think is really interesting to think with um, is Isaac Asimov's Foundation series is a, a narrative of decline, um, and he patterns this on the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And what Asimov is basically saying is, you know, you look at technological decline, um, and you can see political decline along with it. And Asimov points to the decline in space travel and nuclear power as the, you know, the indicators of decline. It, when he wrote this in the 50s, that seemed like a completely natural thing um, to see nuclear power and space travel as progress. But our nuclear power capacity peaked in the 1970s. Our fastest rocket ship flew in 1969. Um, the best rocket we ever had was the Saturn V, which last launched in 72. Um, if you take Asimov's description of that story, we've been in decline for 50 years, right? If you accept his terms, we've been in decline for 50 years. But I don't think most people now would say that the last 50 years has been a time of technological decline. But if you took that snapshot maybe 50 years from now 
and you have maybe climate catastrophes or you have wars or other things where space travel and non-carbon um, producing nuclear power would have been ideal technologies to develop, Asimov's narrative might actually look like a narrative of decline that makes sense again. But in a sense, what you have right now is a snapshot where you can use this to talk about decline, or you can use this to say this is irrelevant and the narrative of progress still still stands up. Um, but the snapshot really is something that is a, a fixed reality that you can put a story around however you would like to tell that story. And then you can attach... Um, people who created this reality uh, and either give them credit for creating a good reality or give them blame for creating a bad reality. Yeah. You have this example in the, in this chapter where you say that in 1980, young workers in Flint, Michigan earned salaries 20% higher than those of their young working peers in San Francisco. And then by 2013, San Francisco, young workers in San Francisco make nearly 60% more than their peers in Flint, Michigan, and you're like you you can say that you, you you say you you can use this as a story about the decline of Flint, the ascendancy of San Francisco, and the tech coastal quarter, or anything. But but he's like it's not. But these things aren't built into the facts. There's these are snapshots which which offer and 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 you point out like Michael Moore and and you know in the in the documentary Roger and me and, and the Flint water crisis. Flint has become right the kind of emblematic picture of of this decline narrative, right? But you say like this is this is um, emotional work that's done. It's projected onto. It doesn't it doesn't scream out the decline as as a fact in and of itself, right? Yeah, and that's I, I love that I love that piece of data because it really is it opens three different stories. One is the story of Flint's decline. One is the story of San Francisco's rise. And one is the story of a kind of rise of the coast and decline of the Rust Belt. And the rise of the coast narrative, you know, comparing a, a rich city to Flint isn't a particularly powerful narrative to tell right now. Um, there's lots of better ways to talk about San Francisco's rise than to compare it to Flint. But showing Flint's fall in comparison to San Francisco is really powerful. And so what that data is always used to do when it's used is to show the decline of Flint. Um, it doesn't, it isn't used to tell either of the other two stories because it's not the best way to tell those stories. It isn't evocative or powerful in the way that um, it, I think, shocks people to realize that 40 years ago, Flint wasn't just a, a prosperous city. It was actually a wealthy city and a city of opportunity instead of a city of kind of post-industrial failure. Um, and so the story really does shape the way the facts can be used. And it's really a, a story that kind of gets its own momentum at times. And you say that this trend happens all the time in ancient Rome. And you talk about how basically there's this, you know, we're going to make Rome great again. That this, <laughs> you know, that this narrative is like all over the history of the ancient Roman Republic. And that you, you point out that there's this disturbing trend. Like when, when, you, when you make the decline narrative, right, you, you, it requires people, again, that kind of cause the decline. And then you have all this legitimization once people buy into the story to – disenfranchise, trample on the rights, marginalize, demonize the people that you're saying, those are the people that caused it, right? And this is the, this is the thing that it, I take it as you're saying, this is that there, oh, there's always this really high cost to trying to renew public life and renew the Republic with this kind of rhetoric, because it's always got big, big, big losers. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the thing that was most striking about this book. Um, I start the book in the, the third century BC. We end it um, I mean, we ended in 
really now, but the Roman narrative goes through Charles V in the 16th century. And what you see is this narrative is is continually there. I mean, there are moments when Romans do something different with it. There's a progress narrative in the fourth century. Um, there's a narrative of renewal without decline that is really the narrative of the second and early third century. But for the most part, when there's massive or, or large political change, either someone who's looking to build a political following in the Republic or a new imperial dynasty looking to establish itself, this narrative of decline and renewal comes up because it's used to justify violence, Um, either violence that affects someone physically and takes their life um, or violence against their rights or their property. And in the Republic, in the third century and early second century, it's a lot more trampling on people's rights than it is taking their lives. But as you get into the empire, this starts to be a rhetoric that is quite literally used to justify killing people. Um, In 80 BC, there's 10,000 people killed in basically an arena right below the Senate when the dictator Sulla announces his renewal of the Roman Republic. He announces his restoration of the Roman Republic while he's publicly torturing to death 10,000 prisoners of war. What did, what did they do? I mean, these are these are prisoners of war from Gaul or other places. I mean, they're, they're just this is just kind of to show like we've got mastery over the outsiders in Rome. It's even worse. These are Roman citizens. So this oh, is wow. following Yeah, this is following a civil war. Um, And Sulla just conquered the city of Rome and defeated the forces against him. And these were Samnite prisoners of war who were Roman citizens who had fought on the other side of that. And he captured them and put them down in the Circus Maximus. And at that point in the Roman Republic, the Senate met in various buildings. There wasn't just a Senate house. And so you could actually determine where the Senate was going to meet at a specific time. And he called the Senate meeting in a temple that was on a hill above the Circus Maximus so that the senators could listen to this. And he timed it so that he announced his restoration of the Roman Republic while these people were being tortured to death in public. Um, The senators literally listened to the background noise of thousands of people dying uh, while Sulla announced that the Republic was back. What, What are the senators doing at that point? They are, I think, cowering in fear. Um, he's killed a large number of them already. So a lot of these are people who are supportive of him anyway. Uh, but the ones who weren't, who kind of had somehow escaped this, this purge, they've got to just be terrified. Because what Sulla is saying, I mean, the, the idea in the Roman Republic was if you are a citizen, the state does not take your life. I mean, it, it isn't a state that has um, public executions of people in this way. It, it doesn't do this. And so not only is he breaking with this really longstanding kind of social convention that the state doesn't take life of citizens, uh, but he's doing it in a massive scale in a very public way to announce a set of political reforms. And so the people who didn't agree with it just sat there terrified. Um, there wasn't anything they could do. Why it, it's interesting because you just remarked a moment ago that you know it, this ru- ru- this rise and decline narrative is it, you, you talked about ref- Charles referencing it in the 16th century. It's amazing that the narrative outlived the Republic. <laughs> that, that we're still so why is it why is the rise and decline narrative of Rome so it, it, why does it have this kind of grip on the Western imagination that that long after the Republic and the Empire dies we're still we still use it to kind of interpret our own. I mean, people still do. I mean, people have, you know, I, I remember when the Iraq war happened, second Iraq war and 
the whole academic empire movement and, and, and comparing ourselves to this imperial declining. I mean, we, we still use Rome for our own self-understanding in, in an interesting way. Yeah, there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, as you move through the 16th century, even into the 18th century, there is, of course, the Holy Roman Empire in um, in Western Europe. And that's actually founded on a kind of lie of Roman renewal. The donation of Constantine in, you know, emerges in the 8th century as a way for the popes who had been living under what we would call Byzantine control, but the people at the time called Roman control, based in Constantinople. Um, right, so this were, is the shift to the empire when... when- Constantine kind of moves everything out to what we think of as modern day Turkey and the kind of the shift, the shift of the, of the, the empire's power becomes that that part of the Mediterranean basin, not Italy. Yeah. So there's a division where there's a creation in the fourth century of a parallel capital in, in Constantinople, and there's an Eastern empire and a Western empire. Um, and the Western empire ultimately uh, loses a lot of its territory. And then under the Emperor Justinian is absorbed by the Eastern empire. There's a reconquest of the, the West that results in hundreds of thousands of deaths. Um, This is another narrative of restoration. But Rome then lives under the control of Constantinople for almost 300 years. Um, And it emerges out of Constantinopolitan control because the popes basically manufacture um, a narrative that said that Constantine actually gave the popes control of the Western Empire. Um, it's a completely fictitious thing based on a forged document called the Donation of Constantine. But what popes in the 8th century and early 9th century used this to do is to make Charlemagne the Western Roman Empire emperor. And they create a Western Roman Empire out of nothing, but they use this rhetoric of rest- restoration um, to do it. And they say, in essence, this is restoring prerogatives that Constantine gave them. Um, in a completely fictitious way, but it justifies the creation of the Holy Roman Empire um, kind of out of nothing. Uh, But that Holy Roman Empire survives until the 1800s. But what you see across the last sort of phases of this, the last couple hundred years, is a lot of other people in Europe also make a claim on the Roman legacy. So the Russians do it, the French do it, um, you see the Venetians do it, uh, the Spanish do it in a way. Uh, and so this legacy becomes something that's kind of democratized and open to anyone who wants to claim it in whatever way they want to claim it. Um, and then I mean, as- what, are the, what, what the heck are the Spanish claiming? I mean, I, 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 this is just interesting. Like, what are the, I mean, how does this work? The Russians, that were saying, okay, we're, 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 we're successes. We're branding the franchise. I mean, what, why, how does that, how does that benefit uh, a, a, a country, you know, centuries after after there even is a, a, a real empire, I mean, how, what, what's the again? Is this just part of again a kind of d- decline and rise narrative? Like, hey, we're trying to renew, and so we're going to go back to the glory days of the Roman Republic, kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a tremendous cachet in well in the West and the East. Um, if you're Eastern Orthodox, like the Russians, um, the connection to the Roman Empire that was based in Constantinople for 1,100 years is really, really significant. And so you have a, 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 a rise of this narrative in 16th century Russia that, that focuses on the Russians as the kind of successors of the Constantinopolitan state. And you actually even have, um, in the 16th century, a Russian ambassador go to the Pope to try to get papal recognition of this. 
Uh, and so it's a real kind of dynamic way of thinking about this. What, what did the Pope say? Are you kidding me? I mean, like, they're totally willing to negotiate this. Um, there's actually a Pope. What did they want back? Like, what did like what what did the what did the what did this what does the Pope want back for the recognition? Like, can, they want conversion. You know, they want a, a sort of church union. Um, oh, so they're saying, look, we'll make you the legitimate successor to the Constantinian Roman. We'll enfranchise that if you come back to Rome and come back into yeah. with, ah, Okay, that's a good but deal. There's actually, I mean, the best example of this is a letter written by Pope Pius II um, that we don't think was ever sent, but it was written to Mehmet II, the conqueror of Constantinople. And what Pius actually does is he offers him basically title to the, to the Roman Empire if Mehmet converts to Christianity. Um, and then there's a second effort to do this in the 1460s, where they send a, a like a papal legate who knows Greek really well. They send him to Constantinople to try to get him um, to convert Mehmet to Christianity. And so this is something the popes dangle out there: is Constantinople has fallen, there is no more Eastern Roman Empire, but that title is kind of out there, and it's on me to kind of bestow it on you. I can give you recognition as Roman emperor, but what you have to do is make a. a Kind of a spiritual compromise. If you're if you're Muslim, you convert to Christianity, and I will give you this title. Um, if you're Russian, you make an alliance with the Catholic Church, and we will give you this title. Uh, and so the popes are really very actively sort of shopping this title that, frankly, isn't theirs to shop. Um, but that's the kind of negotiation that's going on. Yeah, that's a fr- that's a great deal for the for the church, right? For the popes, because it's like we're not we're giving you something we don't, doesn't even really exist. <laughs> well, I mean, this this is like a confidence game, a comment, right? This is a kind of like I mean, that's fascinating. Yeah, so the popes are doing that in one way, and then the old like the surviving members of the the Paleologan dynasty, the last dynasty that run the empire in Constantinople, they're also shopping the title. And so there's a rumor in the um, the late 15th century that the French king bought the title to Roman Emperor of the East from one of the one of the uh, descendants of the last. Roman Emperor of the East, one of the Paleologi. Um, the Spanish king also buys it, apparently. Wait, what are they going to do with it? Yeah, well, that's the question, right? Like, there, there's, <laughs> They can use the title if they want. And the Spanish king, actually, they have all of these old fictional titles. So they have uh, the king of the old crusader kingdom of Jerusalem. This is also a title that the Spanish crown has in the, the 15th, 16th century. Um, and so they're they're kind of collecting these titles that exist to kingdoms that no longer exist. Um, and so there's a, a kind of idea of restoration of these these lost Christian kingdoms in the East that really excites the Spanish in particular. Um, I can't believe no one has pitched this to Trump yet. Like, hey, we'll make you the, <laughs> we'll make you the heir of the road. That sounds fantastic. I'm now the heir of the glorious Roman Empire. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, you know, this seems like perfect for him. Yeah, no, I think it's it's really uh, definitely the kind of thing that um, it could work. And it did, you know, in some 20th century context, people did try this. I mean, Mussolini is is trying this rhetoric again. Um, if you go and you, you walk now from the Colosseum to the Forum, what you see are these three giant maps of Rome. Uh, and you have the, the Roman Republic, you have the expansion of it, you have the Roman Empire to its greatest extent. There used to be a fourth map, which was Mussolini's empire. And so Mussolini put these maps up, and the fourth map was his Roman restoration. 
Um, and now that map has been taken down and the other three are still there. But but you see this rhetoric is still something that people could use and, and did use into the 20th century. Now, you talk specifically about like uh, that plagues and pandemics, which were, you know, have been with us for since the dawn of, you know, human history, that the, these things play a, a role, right, in this decline narrative. I mean, that you kind of, is this because they, they kind of devastate the Republic or the empire. And then you've kind of got this emotional trauma that like, are, are there things that just kind of make space for the, for the emotional appeal of the, of the rise and decline narrative? Yeah. I mean, these things are, are terrifying in a Roman context because they don't really understand where they're coming from. And so they're, so they hit and they just keep hitting. Um, and so in the, the 160s, you have the emergence of smallpox in the Mediterranean, probably the first instance of this. Um, and so you have a completely unexposed population that is just devastated by this. And it hits kind of repeatedly for a generation um, to the point where you know, 2,000 people a day are dying in the city of Rome and the, the last big sort of moment of this. Um, and then in the 250s, you have another plague that hits that seems like it was basically Ebola. Or something like Ebola, you know, a, a disease that that affects you in much the way Ebola does and kills terribly and horribly. Um, and in this case, with smallpox, the the way it affects um, is to some degree seasonal. With Ebola or whatever that was in the 250s, the way it hits is extremely seasonal because it's particularly powerful in the winter when people have to be in close quarters with each other. Um, and in each of those cases, the empire really is struggling. Uh, it's you know its military starts losing massive numbers of troops, uh, and these are professional soldiers who aren't easily replaced. The administrative class from the cities on up to the admin- imperial administration that's also devastated by these these out these outbreaks. Um, but what's interesting is the way that the state responds. You know, in in the one sixties and one seventies, the response is actually in some ways uh, one that brings society together. You know, you, you have an emphasis on overcoming this collectively. There isn't a, a real effort to identify people who made this happen or people who are responsible for this. Instead, what you have is a real commitment to making it, to improving those conditions. And it affirms the strength of society um, in a way that's really quite remarkable. I mean, the devastation and the fear that must have just gripped Romans for the better part of a generation could easily have been used by somebody to undermine the social the social compact, and it isn't. But in the 250s, it is. Um, the first empire-wide persecutions of Christians occur amidst this uh, this plague, and that really came out of an idea that the gods were upset. And somebody was responsible for this. And the people who were responsible for this were the people who weren't sacrificing. Uh, and so you have two edicts that are issued by the Emperor Decius and by the Emperor Valerian in the 250s that require everybody to sacrifice and require people to have receipts saying they do it. And if they don't have that, they're subject to penalties up to capital punishment. Um, and so there you have the opposite response. You know, it's also a pandemic. It's also horrifying. It's terrifying. Um, it's really, really disruptive. But instead of something that kind of affirms the social compact, what you have are emperors who try to uh, identify people responsible and assert their own power and their own capacity to generate a renewal by targeting those individuals. And so what you see, I think, is in the context of plagues, you can go either way. 
you can respond in a way that makes your society stronger and affirms everything that's good about your society, or you can weaken your society and divide it and identify people who should be on the other side of this, who must suffer for a renewal to come about. Uh, And I think Rome shows really that both options are available. It really comes down to how you want to respond and what you are looking to do um, with your society, whether you want to make it, whether you want to continue to affirm its strength or whether you really want to use this to create greater divisions. Um, And I think this is deliberate. It's interesting too, because this is sort of, this rise and decline narrative is is the backdrop for Augustine's City of God, right? And he's sitting there thinking, you know, the people are concerned because you know the, the is it you know the vandals where they they hit Rome and oh my gosh, the, it's kind of like this nine eleven effect, like the where this you know massive power where somebody that's less culturally power came in and ransacked us and and you have like people like Jerome that's like yeah it is in decline, like so I'm going to go to Jerusalem and wait for Christ to come back, and you have like. Sylvanus, the priest, who's saying, well, no, 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 we just got to get more righteous. And we, if we just, you know, it's not that we got the wrong pagan gods, it's that we got to pray more and be more holy. And then we'll get, but Augustine kind of says, no, 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 no. Like, this is just circumstance, the drama of history. And if we fall, we'll have to Christianize our new masters. And he's kind of like, it seems to me the city of God is, is, is one kind of big theological historical treatise that's sort of pushing back against the rise and decline narrative, right? He's, th- th- this worries Augustine a lot. Yeah, and I actually spent a good deal of time on this in the book because I think this is such a key text. Um, because what Augustine is doing is he's, in a sense, um, realizing the limits of the the Christian narrative that's been going on for the last century. Um, starting with Constantine, Christians begin saying, contrary to the way Romans have always thought about their society in the past, um, progress is good. You know, for most Romans, for most of Roman history, there's this idea that there's a kind of paleo a Roman state that was virtuous and capable. And these problems we have now arise from a kind of fallen state and we can get back to it. You know, we always need to recover the lost virtues that had made us great. And this is the narrative that Rome had been using for the better part of 500 years by the time Constantine uh, converts to Christianity. And Constantine initially frames the conversion of Christianity, the conversion of the state to Christianity in traditional terms. What he says is there was an original God. And what we've done is we've kind of lost touch with what that original God was. And so I'm restoring the the kind of proto-divinity that is the original God, and I'm bringing us back to what was good. But as you get into the the reign of Constantine's successors, they start pushing a narrative that isn't, I'm restoring something, but I'm making Rome better. There is a, a better state that Rome can come to, and it's a Christian state. And for much of the fourth century, this is a line that a lot of Christians are taking. But as you get into the period after the sack of Rome in 410, people start legitimately, and pagans especially, start legitimately asking whether the narrative of progress is wrong. And this old narrative of tradition is actually correct. And what we've done is create these problems by ignoring the traditions that made us great. And what Augustine effectively does is he says, you're missing the point. You know, the the Roman state is, it's an agent that helps you be a better Christian, but it's not essential to it. Um, And the concept that he's using that we translate as the city of God, the Latin is kivitas. And kivitas actually means, it means city, but it also means a kind of polity or a citizen body. And what Augustine is saying is, you know, yes, you, you belong to this Roman polity, but there's a higher polity you belong to also. And that Roman polity is great when it helps you um, 
enhance your membership in this Christian polity, but it's not essential. And if it's not there, the Christian polity still is. Um, and so this idea of progress is great when, you know, it creates an agency in Rome that enables you to become a better Christian. But really, Rome is, it's a secondary concern. And the most important concern is this, this Christian polity. Um, and so I think you're exactly right. The city of God is a key way of reconceiving what it means to be a Roman Christian. And it is really, really influential in the parts of the West that fall out of Roman rule. Um, what's interesting is the East would not understand it at all. Um, and so I think that's that's another sort of interesting thing where you need to have the experience Augustine was having for that text to really have the power that Augustine generates. Yeah, it's interesting too, because I think he gets something fundamentally here that you see that's unique to the historical Jesus. Like you compare like Jesus to John the Baptist and John the Baptist, apocalyptic Jew, second temple Jew, who says, not yet, but soon, you know, the kingdom of God's not here yet, but it's coming soon. And see so if you get it, you get, a, you get a, a pray, get yourself ready for it because it's coming. And Jesus changes that from not yet, but soon to already and not yet. It's here and yet not here. Like there's something new and mysterious, and yet it's also elusive and on the horizon. And I think that already not yetness is something Augustine can employ. And say, yeah, there's a real, there's a real, uh, po- there's a real civitas, a real polity here, and yet it's one that's a pilgrim polity, right? It's it's only it only finds its ultimate fulfillment in the in in, in the eternal communion with God. So so you, he kind of is able to use this this already not yet to kind of relativize and yet provide right provide reasons. To, you know, hey, we work on the aqueduct with the pagan because we both are seeking peace but we know this world doesn't give us ultimate peace but we can seek penultimate peace with the pagan. and it's it's an interesting philosophy of history that you're saying yeah that's kind of you know but you're right again maybe not possible without the rise and decline narratives i mean maybe augustine couldn't have come up with it unless he was facing what you're talking about yeah i mean it's interesting how long it took augustine to write that text and and the evolution of things across that time um there's a historian named Erosius who is augustine's kind of protege. And in the immediate aftermath of the sack of Rome, we have these sermons or these, these texts that Augustine writes about how do you talk to a pagan about this? You know, a pagan who says, this is your fault. And what Augustine basically says initially is, well, you kind of basically have to change the subject. But Erosius's history is the, the first kind of draft of Augustine's response to this. Uh, and Erosius's history says, in essence, Rome was always bad. You know, these things that you see, Rome was sacked before. Uh, you have plagues, you have defeats, you have barbarian invasions, all of these things that you see, these are just part of Roman history. And so the idea that we are now in some sort of terminal decline because of Christianity is completely false because Roman history is just full of things like this. And what and this is the starting point for where Augustine's City of God kind of begins. But as the next 15 years unfold, it becomes very clear that that's not going to be sufficient. Plus, Augustine is a much deeper thinker than Erosius. And so from the starting point that you can kind of see in Erosius's text, Augustine really takes you in a completely different direction. Um, but what's interesting is a lot of people who didn't read the City of God are working in a similar way. Um, a lot of people in the, the territories in the West that fall out of Roman control in the 5th century are struggling with the same things Augustine struggles with. And they aren't as, they aren't as brilliant as Augustine. They aren't as good writers as Augustine. But you have a good run of people who are struggling with this same issue. Um, so there's a poem written by a man named Paulinus of Pella. Uh, that is called the thing, the poem of Thanksgiving, the Eucharistikos. And what he says 
is that the loss of Roman control of the West, the loss of all of the property that he once had, the loss of all of the status he once enjoyed, this is great for him because it made him a better Christian. And he's not even speaking in, in the way Augustine does about an eternal, you know, an eternal life that he's now better able to access and enjoy. He's actually speaking about in the moment. It makes him a better Christian. Uh, and that makes this situation progress for him. The fall of Rome for him is progress. It makes him better, not just in the next world, but in this world too. Uh, and so I think what you see with Augustine is somebody who is the most capable systematic theologian of that moment, taking ideas that are in circulation and creating something magnificent out of them. Um, but this is something a lot of people in the West struggled with in the fifth century is if this narrative of decline is real, what does that mean for me when my religion is in some ways has backed a progress that doesn't result in what was originally promised? It's so interesting too in American religious life in American like the, the you know where you have a lot of the politically influential religious people are, are are on the conservative evangelical end of the spectrum. It's almost like in that in a lot of that movement, there's like an allergic reaction to that Augustinian sense of history, right? That would relativize America as the city on the hill and things like that. You know, Augustinian response would be kind of like cautious about, you know, America can be great. It can help you be a better Christian, but it can also be an idol and you have to be cautious. I mean, that seems today like that. I mean, there's like no market for that among <laughs> politically influential Christians. Like forget Augustine, man, that doesn't sell. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and Augustine is even more moderate than some of these people. If you read Salvian, I mean, Salvian says the Roman Empire deserves to fall. It's corrupt. It's incredibly corrupt. And, you know, basically, it's good that this happens to these people because these are terrible people. Um, the whole idea of wealth demonstrating virtue uh, and position and political success demonstrating virtue is something that Salvian would not accept at all. Uh, Augustine also, I think, wouldn't accept it, but not in quite the vitriolic way that Salvian wouldn't. But I think you're right. There, This kind of way of thinking is not something that a lot of people on the, the religious right would identify with right now. Um, it really has kind of slipped out of our way of thinking. Um, and so it's interesting. I'm curious. Are you seeing like decline narratives all over the place? I mean, I I feel like there's so many articles written right now all over the place. The Atlantic, here, there, you know, and they they have the authors on cable news all the time. They're saying the virus has shown how really weak a state we are, how much of a failed republic we are, how much we're ill-equipped to deal with big national emergencies. I mean, are you seeing the sort of as a historian, you're like, okay, here it is, rise and decline narrative, a virus. That's all you need. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the question is how do we respond? Like, not immediately. You know, there our capacity to respond to something like this as as human beings is limited. Uh, it will affect us. It will affect us badly. And, and I think in you know across across history, when these things occur, the immediate effects are bad, um, and societies really struggle with how to deal with the immediate um, consequences of something that's so disruptive and fear and terrifying. But then the next question becomes, how does the society move forward and rebuild? And these things can tear a society apart. 
You know, the the 250s in the Roman Empire is a horrible, horrible time, not just because of the plague, but because the society starts tearing itself apart and doesn't respond in a way that affirms all that's good about the society, but instead starts dividing that society in really detrimental and, and dangerous ways. Do you see uh, that already happening right now where you have like a one – if you're on MSNBC, anybody who wants to open the economy back up has no value for human life and has no uh, compassion. And then you go to Fox News and it's all if you don't want to open the economy back up, you want to you're anti-American. You want to you're, you're 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 promoting eroding mental health, domestic abuse, all this. It, 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 it seems like that's already happening where people are camping and tribing up before we're even in a place where we can respond to this thing, because, you know, which is I mean, it's just so complex. Every day we, we learn the known unknowns of things we don't know about the virus. Yeah, that's what really frightens me. Um, you know, I, I think that there are two ways to respond to this. And and one is the way that I think when this initially happened and people start again, bringing out these narratives of like what happened after Pearl Harbor, where everybody rallied around and everybody kind of made their victory gardens and everybody accepted economic limitations and the society kind of came together to build what it needed to, to fight collectively um, the threat that it encountered. And, we're not hearing those stories anymore. You know, we're, we're not hearing those stories of everybody coming together and figuring out how you move forward from this. Instead, we're again sort of circling up and shooting in our circles. Um, and I think that's the thing that really worries me. I mean, the virus is horrible. The economic effect it's had is horrible. How you come back from that really determines a lot more than just the immediate response to the virus, but it determines how your society is going to function in the future. And whether there are people who are going to be identified as responsible for this, who will be victimized by the response. Um, and that's very different from being victimized by the virus. If you are, if you suffer from the virus, that is beyond the society's control in some ways to, to limit and correct. But if you're identified as somebody who's responsible for spreading the virus or responsible for creating the conditions that the spread of the virus did, that's really dangerous. Uh, that's the sort of thing that really undermines the functioning of the society and has implications that go beyond just restarting the economy and dealing with the public health threat. Um, and I think some countries are responding in a way that is affirmative. And I think other countries are responding in a way that is destructive. Um, I think where, where, are you, where, where, where are you seeing the affirmative? Like, where do you think are some good examples of people that are resisting the rise and decline? Winners um, lose their story. I think the way that I mean, I, I think it's dangerous to say exactly what's going on in the way that, say, like Taiwan is speaking about this. But I think the story that you have in Taiwan is is one of really society coming together to, to confront this. I think South Korea too, to some degree, that's the story that you're seeing. Um, and Taiwan also had the advantage of like, not trusting mainland China. So it's like China says, oh, it's not going to go human to human. Taiwan's like, that means it's going human to human. <laughs> like, it's not that bad. That means it's bad. I mean, it's interesting because they seem to have just the intuition that China is hiding something and we know it. And and I mean, it, they're, I mean their death rate is like, it's minuscule for, for a, a, a little island. We have 8 million people on top of each other. It's amazing how, how they've contained the virus. 
Yeah, I mean, I think if, if we go back to the idea of the snapshot in the story, right? The snapshot in South Korea is that South Korea suffered a lot from this virus. But the story they tell is of a society that ramped up testing very quickly, came up with contact tracing, did it very effectively, um, and has responded very effectively to this. And so the story could be that the virus really negatively impacted South Korea. But I think the story about South Korea has become one of a society that responded robustly and showed its strength and its institutional capacities. And I think that what could have been a a damaging and destructive and divisive story instead has become one that affirms good things about that society. I think Taiwan to some degree can tell a similar story. You know, this is is a society that if they want to tell the story of, of their society working, they can. I mean, in America, obviously, we've had a lot of failures in the initial out, the initial kind of response um, but I think the indications, at least that economists are, are suggesting, is that the U.S. economy will rebound pretty quickly once this all sort of calms down. That could be a story of affirmation, right? The, the, the great capacity of America to uh, recover from things in, because of the dynamism of our population. I don't know if that will be the story, though. Uh, and I think that's the danger. Yeah, you already see this kind of uh, – because, you know, again, you talk – very uh, instructively about how how these rise and decline things always are, are adversarial. They're always picking reasons, and you see the red blue state response right now, right? Where you're, you know, like you have people, you know, arguing about which states really subsidize which states, and and who were the givers and who were the takers, and it's it seems like already we're playing the blame game, and the thing's not over. I mean, we're it's, it's, we're already preemptively, and that I mean that's the stuff that's worrisome, right? Because we're I mean, I don't know. There's not a big liberal democratic republic like us. There's nothing as big and diverse like us that's a that's a pretty functional liberal democratic republic in modernity, right? In in, in late modernity, and we're the we're kind of the biggest, most diverse one. I wonder, is it, it, it again? This gets back to your mortal republic book. I mean, is is are we more frail than we think because of the tribalism and the kind of blame game that 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 it really could strain the sinews and things that hold us together? Yeah, that's what I really, really fear. Um, you know, I, I think it's possible to see this going in a lot of different directions. I mean, one way is if there is, as people have been talking about, a kind of second wave, um, you can see it's certainly within the realm of possibility to, to see blue states blaming red states for opening too early. Uh, and there you have then a, a sort of second wave of blame where the virus, in essence, it, is stripped of its responsibility for causing the problems. And instead, you're throwing these problems onto other people, making choices that you might or might not agree with. Um, there are ways, I think, to have that conversation affirmatively, but I don't, I think the way it's going right now, where this has become kind of so politicized that you have these divisions that are naturally there if you want to exploit them, this is going to be really dangerous because we don't, we're in the middle of it still. And we've started identifying people who are responsible for something that really is a natural phenomenon. Um, it's hard to say that people are responsible for this, but we are getting to the point where we're already identifying people who who we want to blame or we can blame. Yeah, I just saw a, a study yesterday, It was or two days ago, in U.S. News or World Report that was saying, Right now, the virus is actually spreading faster in rural and non-metro areas than metro areas, which blew me. I, that blew me away. Um, and immediately, so I was talking to a friend who's, who's a pretty conservative guy, and, and 
but he was saying that he wonders how much of that is just people um, skeptical, like, oh, is it, is it, is it really as bad as people are saying? And is it, you know, and so are they being as careful or whatever? And it's just, it, it, again, it, it, are, it, it, and he's, in, he's in a rural area as a conservative guy, but he's already identifying this kind of cultural, cultural sort of conflict that's happening, right? Well, are, are the people uh, distrustful because it comes from blue states? Or is, is it being exaggerated to control the economy and all this stuff? And, and yeah, you already see the blame games all over the place, right? Yeah. I mean, the thing that I think is, is particularly, the thing that I, I find really distasteful is occasionally you're seeing these news stories where they're identifying people who died of the virus, who posted something on Facebook that they didn't take it seriously. Um, you know, that is, that's a level of, well, I think it's incredibly distasteful, but it's also kind of something that we would not normally do, right? Someone who dies of a virus, you're not going to shame them for what they thought about the virus. And I think that's indicative of something where we really need to step back and say, what are we doing? What are we trying to accomplish by creating that story? You know, by taking that snapshot of somebody's Facebook post from February and making that, in essence, the way we want to publicly frame their life. Uh, there's something really destructive in doing that. And I think we need to be very aware of what the consequences are when we're having conversations like that, um, when there are other conversations to have and better conversations and conversations that make us stronger as a, a larger polity and a larger group of citizens. Yeah, I, I actually, I, I yeah, I agree. I think it, this is the problem. I think with the, you know, John Stewart always says the media, its biases and its politicals is towards laziness and sensationalism, and I, and some of that. But some of this stuff. Okay, so Trump says something uh, stupid, silly about disinfectants or whatever, and Fox kind of ignores it or doesn't. And MSNB, MSNBC runs it on a loop, right? Like I'm just thinking, like, okay, reporting it's fine, and I think it's you know it, it's part of the public discourse and things. But but at one point, do we, we need information? Like we need the Walter Cronkites because I, I think like we're not going to get I don't think a vaccine anytime soon. I mean the, the earliest the the quickest thing we've ever done with a vaccine right is months is four years. So like we're probably not going to get a vaccine anytime soon. And so we're going to have to have a collective conversation of like you're saying of moving forward shared risks. Like like if we're going to open the country back up, it's going to be with some shared risks, and we're going to have to ask different things of different people. People that are more vulnerable are going to probably have to sacrifice more for their own safety and things like that. And so all that we said, like we need information, right, that can spark our imagination to to recover. And I, I just feel like that so much of the media conversation does not serve that end. It is not in, it, it giving us information that will stoke our imagination and help us have what you're saying, a collective resilient response. If anything, it's it's sort of doing a lot of fear, you know, fear, fear mongering and, tr and stoking up tribal anxieties and animosities. And it's just getting us to the place where well, I don't think we'll ever be able to, get to say, okay, here's what we have to have a sense that we're all in this together and, and cautiously move forward. It, it seems like that's just eroding by the day. Yeah, I think that's the key point, right? The the idea that our society and especially our political system, but our society in general is based on this idea of consensus and compromise. And the, in the United States historically, when people have created a consensus around sort of compromised positions, that that consensus holds and people move forward and they take whatever policies are made based on that consensus and they improve upon them. But everybody's invested in moving them forward. And you don't start then looking at the aspects of a policy that didn't work and highlighting those and undermining the policy. Instead, if you have 
say, 80 senators voting for something and you have 350 people in the House voting for something, they're all, in essence, invested in making that move forward and making it functional. And none of them can disavow it and walk away from it and politicize it and demagogue against it because they are, in essence, invested in making it work. And that's really the way I think we can move forward here, you know, to, to find a way where there is a general um, set of compromises that are reached that builds large consensus behind not only the public health measures that are necessary, but the recovery measures that also need to follow on that. And if you have a large number of people on you know, all different parts of the political spectrum invested in moving the country forward together, then you can have a dynamic process where things that worked um, you continue to do things that don't work, you fix, but you aren't blaming anybody and you're not pinning bad policies that were created without understanding the full implications of the situation. Um, you're not pinning that on somebody else and using it for your own political advantage. Instead, everybody is working together to solve a problem that we're all facing collectively. And some of what happened in response to this was done that way. You know, some of the economic um, stimulus stuff was done that way. Um, but some of it has not been done that way. And I think the way forward is, you know, to have the conversations on on those grounds, you know, the, the grounds of consensus, where we are all invested in this, we all acknowledge that some of what we're doing will work, and some of it won't work. But everybody is going to be invested in taking the stuff that works and making it work better and dis discarding the stuff that isn't working and finding something that can address that problem in a more effective way. Um, and I think you're right. That's the way we have to move forward. I wonder, is it with the rise and decline narrative, is it sort of chicken or egg? Is it, is it Does the rise and decline stuff start the tribalism or is it a result of the tribalism? I'm thinking about like George H.W. Bush, who going into his convention was 20 points down to Dukakis and then won like 40 states. I mean, won this landslide. So that much of the country was that persuadable. Right, which is just unimaginable now. I mean, if you win by three or four points, you're, it's an it's a major win. And I wonder, is it again? Does the rise and fall and blame game cause the tribalism, or is there a mutually conditioning kind of thing? Because if you're this tribal, if you're this tribal, it automatically sets you up to blame someone, right? Like it's oh, if you're thinking in, in these hyper partisan, hyper tribal yeah. modes, it's almost like you're it's it's the reptilian part of the of the brain, right? You're framed to kind of fight or flight stuff, like so. So it almost it's almost like you're more susceptible to these kind of narratives you're writing about because you're always ready to blame. There's a group, big group of people you're ready to blame for everything. Yeah, I think that's a really really good question. Um, I, I think that you have to have a sense that something is wrong to generate that emotion. Um, but you might not be able to, to picture or you might not be able to pin what's making you upset on a specific group or a specific person. Um, so I think to use a Roman example, when Cato starts demagoguing against people who are too devoted to luxury in the 190s BC, there's a general sense in Roman society that, that something's out of whack, you know, that there are people who are, they're too rich and they don't deserve it. And it is, it's money that is um, being flaunted in ways that, that makes people uncomfortable, but they don't exactly know why they're uncomfortable about it. And what Cato does is he identifies, he's very smart. I mean, he identifies that feeling. He understands how he can capitalize on that feeling. And then he targets people that are his political opponents and pins responsibility for this on those people. The thing that's, of course, remarkable about Cato is Cato is one of the people who is benefiting from this new reality. 
Um, but because he's created the narrative, he can throw the consequences and the responsibilities onto other people. Um, and so I think what I think you're right that in some ways you must have a sense that something's wrong for this narrative to really work um, and for it to be a, a sort of powerful and disruptive tool. But that doesn't mean that you know who you want to blame for it. And the skilled politician is the skilled and, and kind of opportunistic politician is the person who understands that this discontent is there. Um, they understand that it hasn't yet been identified why this, who's responsible for creating this discontent. And if they can identify that person and promise to do something about it, that's advantageous for them. I mean, so I think that you're right, that there has to be a sense that something's wrong, but it doesn't have to be completely defined. It can be a vague sense that then um, you provide the narrative that interprets that snapshot. Yeah. And, and the snapshot, it's interesting to me, like I, as you're saying this, because the, the, I think the tribalism and the political cultural tribalism in our in our country seems to make the narrative so malleable. So like they do these interesting polls, like before Trump, right? Like Republicans had a lower view of Russia. Democrats have a higher view of Russia. Then after Trump, Democrats are more suspicious of Russia. Republicans are more suspicious, right? Before Trump, uh, Democrats poll uh, have a more negative view of the NFL than Republicans. But Colin Kaepernick and the kneeling and the, the protests, all of a sudden Republicans go down on the NFL and Democrats go up on the NFL. It's almost just like it, it, the, it, there's a ready-made matrix where you can blame anybody for anything. And, and you kind of and you can the, the what's wrong can become such a moving target. Right. It, it, because because it's it's so it will you just blame them and we'll, we'll figure out as we go along. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's I think that's where the emotion is so important. Right. It's, it's not even that you're upset about something in particular. It's that you're upset and you're looking for some kind of direction about how to, first of all, figure out what you're upset about, but then also how to come up with ways to identify the cause of it and do something to fix this. Um, so, you know, another Roman example of this is, is Tiberius Gracchus, who's a, a politician in the 130s BC, who proposes a land reform bill. And the land reform that he proposes is pretty modest. Um, but the way he proposes it draws so heavily on this emotional idea that something is wrong, we can blame people for it, and I am the person who will stand up for you in the face of these these problems. And so what becomes or what starts as a really relatively modest policy proposal that probably, you know, it it would have probably eventually been implemented anyway. What, what be, was the proposal? What did you want to do? So the proposal is that um there's public land that rich people have been leasing and they have been leasing more than legally they're supposed to. And what he wants to do is take the excess land and distribute it to people who don't have land but want to farm. And the population in Italy at this point is probably 6 million. This would have affected maybe 15,000 families if it was done all the way, um, if all of the land was redistributed in this way. And so it wouldn't have solved any of the problems. You know, it wouldn't have solved economic inequality. It wouldn't have solved problems with people having land. Um, but it is something where he's able to channel a general sense that rich people, the system is rigged in favor of rich people. And so when he starts acting on this policy and pushing this policy and using threats of violence to get this policy implemented, it's an emotional thing. Um, it's, it's a way to convey to people that a system they feel like is rigged, this is someone who's fighting against that system. 
This is someone who's fixing it. This is someone who's who's taking it, you know, taking it to the empowered and the privileged on behalf of the people who feel disempowered. Uh, and the reform itself, in a way, didn't even matter. It's just the idea that here is someone fighting for you um, against entrenched interests that really have been exploiting you. And Tiberius Rock has understood the emotional power of this. Um, but I think this is this is a moment where land reform was in many ways incidental to the people who got most excited about this. They didn't care so much about land reform. They cared about someone fighting aggressively against interests that they saw as responsible for larger social problems. Yeah, and that's kind of Trump's appeal, right? I mean, I feel like he's very effective at this, where he kind of will take his base and and play on the adversarial view of the you know the the blue states the coastal elites the 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 swamp and sort of and, and it's interesting because he often doesn't have to deliver on anything right like i mean it, it, you compare this with like nationalist populist movements in europe where you know maybe there's anxiety about immigration and shifting economy and so they want to they're xenophobic and they're but when they also promise people all these government kind of goodies and and and, and subsidies and we're going to take care of them give but it's interesting. It's like you, in America, you you know the the Trump movement. He kind of he, he gets the loyalty without really offering much. Like I mean, he offers the emotional appeal, and we're going to build the wall. We're going to do, but he doesn't really like he he doesn't have a policy agenda that's really populist. Like it's it's sort of tr- typical kind of you know a, a conservative trickle down sort of you know approach. And where, but. But his rhetoric, right? The the rise and decline renewal rhetoric, and and the and the playing on the the antagonisms out there. That is, it seems like that's almost enough. And people are like, "Yeah, this is great. I feel better. I, I didn't do anything." It's like it's like the it's like the uh, the nutritionist that tells you, "Here's the diet. You know, uh, you know eat all you want, and you, you're not going to lose any weight, but you'll feel good." <laughs> and like that's kind of the policy prescription, right? Like it's it's fascinating. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I think that's a really astute way to to diagnose what Trump is, why this works, um, why there's steadily 40% of the country that supports him, regardless of whether the policies are implemented or not. Um, because the emotional power of what he's doing um, is is so, he has such a capacity to generate this emotional response. And that is enough for a good segment of the population to at least feel like somebody is fighting against these entrenched interests, even if they're not doing anything to address what you might identify as the problems. Um, that I think is, that's the power of the declinist rhetoric is you can do a great deal to build upon the emotional, the emotional conditions of the people around you. Uh, and you can do it if you do it skillfully, it benefits you without you actually delivering much of anything. Because you're, in a way, delivering exactly what you promised. You promised that you will do this, um, you will stick it to the other side. And that's enough. Because in essence, there's an understanding that that's actually what he's promising. Uh, and he's delivering on it. And so if he, you know, implements a farm bill or uh, cuts taxes, that's great. Or appoints judges, that's great. But really, the most important thing that is solidifying his support is this emotional action of doing something to the other side. And it's a very powerful thing to say, the other side caused the problem. And so if I do something to the other side, even if it doesn't fix the problem, it at least addresses the cause. And that can spark a renewal, even though the policy prescriptions might be really modest or non-existent in some cases. 
If you have to get in a time machine and like you have to pick a time in ancient Rome to live, where are you going to live? Like you're like, look, Ed, you're out. We, we, you know, we're, we're aliens. We're doing an experiment. We're going to throw you in ancient. Rome. Like, where do you live? Where do you go? Where do you set the time machine for? Oh wow. Um, you know, I think if, if I had a, a full lifetime supply of antibiotics and I was fully vaccinated, I'd go to the fourth century. Um, Why the fourth century? Because that's not the gold. I mean, you write about sort of the golden age of the Republic, which is, is, is centuries before that. So why the fourth century? The fourth century is a really remarkable moment because you, you have the creation of something that resembles a meritocratic, to a degree, a meritocratic middle class, at least as good as you're ever going to get it in the Roman world. Um, because in the fourth century, everyone in the Roman Empire is a citizen Everyone in the Roman Empire uh, potentially has access to higher education. They have registrations for people who will be future civil servants. They pay those civil servants well. Uh, generally so, speaking, so in it's the first century, what you're saying is like it's it's not like we're in the first century. Like you know, Joseph and Mary, Jesus' parents, they're not citizens. They're an occupied place in Palestine, but but they're really they're subjects, but not a citizen. So you're saying by the fourth century, they would have been citizens. Exactly. Yeah. Now, in the first century, what you have, it's great to be an Italian because it's like the British Empire, right? You have this this central point, and it controls a massive amount of territory that it can exploit and take resources from. Um, by the fourth century, everybody in that territory is Roman. Uh, and so everybody in that territory has, at least theoretically, equal access to opportunities, um, even going up to the imperial throne. Uh, and you have emperors, by the fourth century, you've had emperors from Spain, from France, from Syria, from um, Tunisia, from um, Serbia, Croatia. You know, it's it really is something that's a lot closer to a nation state than it is to a sort of imperial entity, like it was in the first century. Um, no, if I can. How, be- do, how does somebody from Croatia get the imperial throne? Is it because they're a military figure, or I mean, how do you like that? Seems like so far from the center of gravity. Yeah, I mean, in in many cases, it's because they're military figures. So a bunch of the people in the fourth century who are getting power that way are military figures. Um, but some of them are basically cre- creatures of the court. Um, some of them, in you know, in the third century, some of these people are just senators who have risen to power through their prominence and their connections. Uh, but yeah, in the fourth century, these these there's a massive collection of people from Croatia and Serbia who basically rise up because they're really well connected to the legions. And when they're choosing emperors, uh, many of these choices of emperors are peaceful, but it's other people like that who are choosing people they know from, you know, the fourth century version of the officers club. (laughs) So that's your century for the meritocratic thing. If you can get the antibiotics. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I, I think that um, that moment is the best moment to kind of be a member of the relatively prominent Roman elite. Um, it's, it's the the time of greatest opportunity, I think. And it's a society that um, is dynamic. Um, it's, it's wealthy, it's well-protected. Uh, and, you know, to, to get back to our original point of discussion, there's no plagues that century. So <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You're plague-free. So you're a professor uh, by trade. You're not just a scholar. You teach. Are you going to have classes in the fall, you think? I mean, are they talking about that? Is it is yeah. it pretty anxiety-inducing right now for you, like what the uh, future looks like? I think we're we're right now remote. We're going to be remote for the entire summer. Um, in the fall, they're trying to figure it out. I think one of the, the biggest challenges that, that we're facing is um, 
about 20% of our student body comes from other states and other countries. And it's not really clear how that's going to work. I know I have a graduate student from Australia who won't be allowed out of the country. Um, so she's going to have to do everything remotely in the fall. And I, so I think that's one of the things that universities really have to figure out is how can we do what we do effectively when you might have students across 12 time zones taking your class? Yeah, I have a friend who's uh, his wife teaches at WVU in West Virginia, and he said, you know, like his fear is he's a journalist, and of course he's doing anything remotely, but he's like they've just made a policy. They've just told the university has just told all the parents that they can come and get all their students' stuff from the dorms, and he's like, oh my gosh, we're going to have people converging all over in a closed thing, and then I mean, this is right, like I mean, because it seems like college campuses are the toughest things, right? Because you've got people coming from a lot of different places. And then going into very close quarters, right? And this is the scary. I mean, this is where you're talking about second and third waves. I mean, it seems like this is just one of these things. It's just cha- I don't know what the answer is, but that seems very challenging. Yeah, I, I think with our campus, we had the the f- good fortune of um, having a spring break right when it became clear what the issue was. You know how serious this was, and so they were able to stagger the students leaving campus. Um, and now they are all in single rooms, so you can limit their interaction with each other to a greater degree. I mean, they're still in a common space, but um, they've also... Your your students are still on campus in in singles. It's students who either are in countries they're not allowed to go back to okay, uh, okay. uh, or people who have housing insecurity. Um, So students who come from families where, you know, they're homeless or um, it's not totally clear if they could go back to a stable house. Um, or if it's students who won't otherwise have internet access and can't take their classes. So I think that the university, my view is the university has been pretty responsible in identifying who needs that accommodation. Um, they also, we have a new dorm that's just about finished. And that apparently is um, open for, you know, if there is a surge of patients who need housing, I think that that's something that our campus is expecting that we can maybe accommodate. And so I think they're also keeping excess capacity in case they need to isolate people either from the community or from the campus who, who are affected. So personally, I think that they're, they're doing this in, in handling this in a responsible way. Um, but you're right. It is a really – college campuses are so densely populated um, with people living on top of each other, quite literally, um, that reopening without a vaccine, I think, is going to – spark um, second and third waves of infections pretty quickly. And how about you're in Southern California, right? Um, yeah. And how bad is it there right now? Uh, San Diego, I think because San Francisco and the Northern California cities were hit really relatively quickly in this, um, the statewide orders worked really well in sort of isolating a lot of Southern California from this. So I think in, in San Diego, it's been managed pretty well. Um there, the shelter-in-place stuff came out before it had really spread radically and, and aggressively in the community. Um, so I think that, that generally speaking, we haven't been hit as hard as, say, New York or Washington State. Um, but I think in part that's because we were, we're in a large state and other parts of the state were hit earlier. Uh, I don't know what that's going to mean it's, it, I think, impossible to say what that's going to mean moving forward. But right now, San Diego, I think, has a relatively low um, incidence of the virus, and it's had relatively low numbers of deaths compared to other cities of its size. But you guys are still at shelter 
at place and st- stuff's not open. I mean, you're like stuff except like grocery stores and stuff. You're pretty much closed down still, right? Yeah, my hair has grown about three inches since the haircuts have been stopped, and um, we're masks. And as of May first, we were wearing we're required to wear masks when we're in public places. Um, so I think, if anything, the preventive measures are are getting stronger um, in San Diego County. Well, hey, Ed, thanks for coming back on the show and stay healthy because we need you thinking about pandemics and the empire, and you know we need historians to, uh, to oh. give us. Wisdom, right? What does Hegel say? The the owl of Minerva spreads her wings, like looking, you know, in hindsight, right? It's always it's only in hindsight that we really learn anything. So I appreciate your work as a historian and as uh, someone who commentates and makes comments on contemporary culture. I really enjoyed this, um, and I'm happy to be back, and I'm happy to come back whenever. Awesome, thanks, Ed. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.